We'll begin the class the way we normally do, and that's with a period of silent prayer. It gives us an opportunity to... One of the, the things it gives us an opportunity to do is just to relax, because sometimes rushing here and rushing there, we're always in a hurry, and it's uh, we just need to relax. The other thing, of course, the important thing is for confession of sins. If we have any unconfessed sins in the life, we need to use First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that is critical to studying the Word of God. So you have just a few seconds to close your eyes, bow your head for privacy. Uh, conduct any of that spiritual business that's needed, and then I'll open us in prayer. So let's bow our heads. Dearly Father, we're thankful for this Bible class that we can conduct starting on Thursdays here, the noon hour Bible class. We're thankful for those who are interested in studying the Word of God, those who are serious students, who are uh, working on their spiritual lives, working out their spiritual lives through spiritual growth and focusing on the Word of God. We're thankful for Capital Bible Seminary, Washington Bible College, and the Equip Institute, and this uh, recent leasing of the property here so that we have a place to study. We're certainly also thankful for the Word of God that has been preserved for us, the Book of Ruth, and the books that we will study as well as Ruth as we work our way through the Book of Ruth. So help us to, to focus, Father, this morning. Help us to understand the truths that are here. And then, of course, be able to see how appropriate they are for our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. During prayer, we've gained some uh, some members. Uh, last week, we read up through, and we were up to verse 6. Uh, several of us weren't able to be here. We started a point-by-point examination of some principles that I think are always important. Uh, we can look at the verses, there's so much there, and uh, periodically we kind of pass over some very important items. And one of the things that we do learn in studying the, the Bible, honestly uh, doing a study, is that we're interested in reading the text, but sometimes we need to slow down and ask questions of the text and and ask questions of ourselves as we read the text and say what what does this mean and is there more is there more here than what I'm just getting with a casual reading and I don't mean a casual reading meaning careless but casual readings carry us through the book and it does give us uh, the themes sometimes the themes of the book and the and what we might say is the gist of the book uh, the story but there's often so much more there. And we really are at a disadvantage because the, the author, probably uh, a Jewish author, realizes that his audience, for the most part at that time, was going to be Jewish. And so they had a background that was steeped in the Mosaic Law, steeped in... 
uh, Israel's history. And so, as they read the text, it was just inherent in their knowledge to understand these things. But for us, we need to slow down and sometimes just stop and go back and pick up the history of of this section so that we, we get the full impact of Ruth. And that's what we're trying to do. So, let me read us back into our passage, uh, into the context. We have gotten through the, the introduction, and we saw that we have a, a Jewish family that's on the move, so to speak. You know, very often we're looking to move from this part of the country to that part of the country, and uh, we see that uh, here's another family that was doing the same thing. Verse 1 in Ruth, verse 1. Verse 1, chapter 1 in Ruth. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, or judges judged, and we saw that this can also be maybe more appropriately seen as deliverers, because that's essentially what they would do. They would, uh, Israel would uh, be faithful for a while, and then they'd go through this downturn in which they're unfaithful in the Lord, and the Lord would then apply pressure to their lives in one way or the other. And, we're going to, and we'll see here in a minute how he did uh, in this uh, situation. But then after a while, Israel would remember that they needed to return to their faith in God. And then they would cry out to God and God would hear their cries and he would send them what we call a judge. But again, it's more probably uh, more accurately called a deliverer. And so we have this deliverer, when the, ju- when the deliverers were ruling or when the judges were judging, that there was a famine in the land. And here is one of the first indications we have that Israel is out of sorts, is out of sorts with God, and there's a famine in the land. And we have studied uh, a little bit already about the promises that God has given to Israel. And one of them would be that they would be blessed and they would have economic prosperity if they were faithful, but they would not if they were unfaithful. And so this immediately tells us that we're in a downturn. Famine in the land. And the land here is Israel. And we've seen ha-eretz referring to the land. That's the Hebrew word, ha-eretz. And we'll see other words that refer to the land, but not necessarily to, uh, not used in the same way. And a certain man of Bethlehem, we saw that Bethlehem means the house of bread. The house of bread, though, is not full of bread right now. So he's from the house of bread, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, and it's another word for, uh, for land and country, but it also means fields. And so the fields of the land, Israel, are now in stress. Uh, there's famine. So he moves from the fields of the land to the fields of Moab. And that's what this says. Into the fields of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So before they move, they have the two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And we see that there's an emphasis here on the name. The name of the man was Elimelech. And we saw that this means God rules, God is king. The name of his wife was Naomi, and we saw that Naomi is, uh, has the idea, uh, it actually can have the idea of beautiful, but it, it certainly means pleasant, uh, enjoyable. And the names of the two sons were Malchon and Chilion. And we have some Hebrew words there. And they are Ephrathites of Bethlehem. The sons' names, uh, one of them's name is 
failing and the other one is sickly. So we, we took some time to see that there are generational differences here in how the family was named. Um, the parents of Elimelech and Naomi were probably in the land during a very pleasant time. They were uh, dedicated to their faith. And so their children are named for pleasant times and for respect for God. God is king. That's how they would have seen God, the God of Israel at that time. And of course, Naomi's name, again, reveals pleasant times. But when it comes time to uh, name their children, there are, there's a difference. There's a difference, a difference in the attitude of how they named their children, one being uh, sickly and the other one being failing. And so, uh, the first one is sickly, uh, Mahlon, and failing is the second one, uh, Kilion. And they went to the fields of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And it came to pass, one of the, probably one of the ways we could describe that, we don't have a sense for the timing here, but it simply says, it came to pass after they had arrived that Elimelech, Naomi's, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left. And the word left here is in the passive sense, and the passive sense means that she was abandoned, and that's the idea. So there's more to it than she, she was just left. She was left and her two sons. Uh, so we saw last time that there was a, uh, a sense of planning, a sense of the future, and suddenly Naomi doesn't have that sense of the future anymore, that outlook. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And uh, we also slowed down long enough here to see in verse 4 that the word here for took is a little bit different. Um, it's not. If we were reading this in English, and we had read several other passages of Scripture where uh, uh, people are marrying, men are taking wives, as the phrase in the Old Testament is described, we would just read right beyond this and say, "Well, okay, these two gentlemen are doing the same thing. It's fairly traditional. It's just the way it goes." But that's not the word that we have here. We don't have the word lakak, which is generally the word that's used in the Old Testament for taking a wife. And I think we discussed that last time. Um, no, as a matter of fact, that's exactly where we, we ended last time. We didn't get a chance to see that. So we'll go on and just note that this is a different word than to take a wife. So we have a preview of coming attractions there. Um, and they dwelt there about ten years. So, we know that the family arrives. They're there for a while. Uh, the father dies. Uh, they, remain, they continue to remain in the fields there at Moab. And then we see that they are there for about ten years. They, during that period of time, they take wives. Then both Malchion and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. And the word here again is that and it says, and the woman survived her two sons, but the word survive means that again she was abandoned. She was left. And so in English we see that uh, 
we don't get the full sense of what we're, what's really happening. Yes, she did survive them, but the idea again is that she is abandoned by her husband and her two sons. And there's a sense there, again, that tells us that Naomi is left behind. And I talked about this last time, but I'm going to repeat it and maybe even expand on it. And it's the fact that she and her husband had plans. I mean, all families do. We, they marry, and you probably talk before you're married about the life you're going to live together, and you have plans. And so she has plans with Elimelech. And they have two sons. And there's, you know, there's really, it's blessing. The, the sons are blessing. The family is blessing. And they now have even greater uh, plans and, and hopes for the future. But that changes. So when her husband dies... Um, you know the hopes and the dreams that go with her husband now are either uh, uh, they're either gone or she still has those dreams. But what does she do with them? Well, she shifts them now. She shifts them to her children, to her sons and her family. So the life that she wants to have with her and had planned to have with Elimelech is gone. But not all hope is lost because we have children, and so her hope now more than likely shifts to her children. So her hope for the future is now shifted. But once more she is betrayed by death. Her two sons that are supposed, you know, supposed to live a while, they are uh, hopefully, even though they're, one of them is named uh, sickly and the other one is failing, hopefully they will uh, live long lives. But this is not how she planned her life. It was to be spent with her husband and her children. Now she's experienced abandonment. She's experienced abandonment with Elimelech and now with her two children. Um, she's experienced abandonment once, once before with the death of her husband, and now she encounter, encounters it once more. Sickly and failing both die, and now to whom will she turn for security, for comfort, and for love? Because that's what she, that was in her plan before. Can she turn to God? Well... That's probably one of the few places left to turn. But the interesting sense of this word is that they've left God behind. You see, there's a, turn, there's, a, there's a sense here that what they did in leaving Israel is that they left God. They've abandoned God and they've gone to Moab. And now she is abandoned into Moab. And so, what we see is the irony here. The irony of the situation is overpowering. The family abandoned God, and now God is seen as abandoning what is left of this family. And so, this gives us insight into what we're going to see in Naomi when we get to the middle part of this chapter. Because this is a woman who has all of this hope, and all of this future, and she has a God, and and Israel is famous for their God, but she feels abandoned. And so Naomi is not only going to feel abandoned without hope, but she's going to be very bitter about this. So this woman has suffered loss, and now she's outside the land. And what does she do? Where will she go? Uh, upon what can she now rely? Last time we saw 
uh, we began, again, a study of these principles. And I'm not going to dwell on them as much as I did last time, but I want to, for those who weren't here, I want to quickly review the first six principles, and then we'll get into principle number seven. Uh, The first principle I said, and for those of you who were taking notes last time, you might uh, either just kind of review those, pick up a few words that you may have missed last time. But first of all, we all face adversity. We all face adversities, trials, sorrows, and crisis in our lives. We're all faced with pain, heartache, and misery that life's experiences very often bring us. The question is, how are we going to address our problems? Are we going to address them with our eyes on ourselves, in other other words, woe is me type approach, or our eyes on the Lord, seeing that God's grace is sufficient to handle any adversity in life? So that was our really our first point. And uh, for those who you who would like to get those points maybe in detail, I am recording the uh, classes. So there's a website where you can go to listen to the classes and uh, and listen and, and hear them again. But anyhow, that's adversity, the adversity we face in our lives. How are we going to handle the adversity? Secondly, here our second point was initially the people in the story are not part of the solution; they're part of the problem. So we've got a problem in Israel, and they don't stay in Israel to change their lives. You know, God provides adversity to get our attention. And when He gets our attention, we should say, I need to make an adjustment in my life. Well, this family made an adjustment, but it was to leave the country where God wanted them. And so they leave Israel. They leave Ha'er, it's the land, and they go to the fields of Moab. So God's God's love follows them. You know, they leave God, but God really doesn't leave them. God follows them into Moab. They're not going to respond to the testing that they're receiving in Israel. So God doesn't abandon us. His grace is sufficient. And He follows them into Moab, and His love is going to continue to work on them there. And His love is seen now, it's manifesting itself as adversity to them. So secondly, initially the people in the story are not part of the solution. They're part of the problem. Instead of changing their lives so that they are are properly aligned spiritually with God, they try to change their circumstances so that the situation around them more readily aligns with their view of comfort, happiness, and prosperity. Let me just repeat that one more time. Initially, the people in the story are not part of the solution. They're part of the problem. Instead of changing their lives, instead of changing their lives so that they are properly aligned spiritually with God, they try to change their circumstances so that the situation around them more readily aligns with their views of comfort, happiness, and prosperity. And where is that? That's in Moab. Situation here is a little tough. Let's go to Moab. Let's change our circumstances. Three, point three. We also see the principle that as goes the individual believer in a nation, so goes the nation. So this principle is as goes the individual believer in a nation, so goes the nation. The national leadership in a nation does not go bad and then the people follow. The national leadership in a nation does not go bad and then the people follow. The individual believers... Stop focusing on the Lord 
and then the nation begins to slide into decay. And so as we look, you know, that's very easy to apply to our own lives. We don't look at our leaders and say, where are they taking us? You know, these, these, this legislation, we're just very soon going to have, uh, matter of fact, the House is looking at uh, a legislation right now regarding, uh, oh, it's uh, hate crimes. And the hate crimes this time that's being changed is to look at how uh, we can describe what we refer to as sins in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's one of the very... uh, There's a couple uh, articles I could have brought. Two women were arrested up in Pennsylvania for uh, giving the gospel because it was felt that uh, Christianity uh, has in it... uh, topics and subjects that can be referred to as hate crimes. And so two women, I think one, both of them were in their 60s, were uh, uh, witnessing on a street corner and they were arrested for it because it was uh, people around them felt that it was, uh, uh, it was hateful what they were doing. And then there's a House resolution right now that uh, talks about uh, pastors and churches that from the pulpit teach homosexuality as a sin, considered hate. And so there's a resolution in Congress right now being considered that uh, could make it unlawful for pastors to preach that type of sin from the pulpit. So we have to be very careful. The nation, and it's not our national leadership's problem. It's our problem. We've gone down this road, and now the leadership has followed us. Point four, there's an irony in the story. The family leaves the house of bread. The irony here is the family leaves the house of bread, Bethlehem, to go to another place to find bread. Bethlehem is is not now the house of bread. It's a house of famine. So something is wrong. And the family leaves the house of bread in order to solve their problems on their own terms. So that's point four. The irony here is they leave the house of bread because it's no longer a house of bread. It's a house of famine. And they're leaving to solve their problems on their own terms. Point five, any Jew reading this story, point five is any Jew reading this story would be immediately reminded of Abraham leaving the land because of a famine. We saw that back in Genesis 12.10. Famine in the land, and uh, Abraham is leaving. The Lord had said, I'm going to take you to a land that I will show you. He gets him into the land. He shows him the land. And one of the first things that God does is test him with a famine. And so Abraham does what uh, you know, human nature, logic, uh, empirical evidence points to, and that is we get up and we leave. You know, let's get out of the, let's get out of the, if it's too hot in the kitchen, get up and leave. You know, move to the living room. Well, that's not, you know, sometimes logic and all the empirical evidence doesn't uh, doesn't uh, bring us to the, the truth. And we're going to study that um, a little bit later in our book in Joshua. But here, what they've done is that they've decided to leave, as Abraham did. And the land was where God wanted Abraham to stay, where he was going to be blessed and he was going to be sustained. However, at the first sign of life's difficulty, we often decide to resolve our problems and we try to do it without God. We try to resolve our problems without God. Man solving his own problems on his own terms. So what happens in Egypt? 
First, because he's out of fellowship, Abraham compounds his problem. He's afraid for his own life, so he lies. He lies, and by lying, then he puts Sarah's life at risk. And so, when we're out of fellowship, when we're out of God's plan, we just very quickly go down the road in a very bad way. So, bad decisions confront us with bad options. And good decisions present us with good options. We stay in the land, we restore our faith, God restores His provisions to our lives. Bad decisions are easy to rationalize because, as I said, it only makes sense because God doesn't want us to starve, surely. Well, God will solve the problems for us. Point six was, as in many bad decisions that seem to solve the original problems, initially things seem to go well. So as in many bad decisions that seem to solve the original problems, initially things seem to go well. The family in Moab finds initial success. They'll survive for a short time, while the sons will even find wives. So this has to be God's plan. I mean, if the children, you know, the two sons can find wives, certainly this is a good thing. However, this was a right thing being done in a wrong way. It's a right thing being done in a wrong way. What appears to be normal, proper routine of life, young men finding brides, it's absolutely wrong because they were marrying non-Israelites and they were marrying unbelievers. So again, what appears to be a normal, proper routine of life, young men finding brides, it's absolutely wrong because they're marrying non-Israelites and unbelievers. And this is where we were last time. So let's pick it up now in verse 7. And our first sentence here in, ver- in point 7, and this is going to be, I think, you'll enjoy this little study because point 7 is a study in itself. How are these marriages to Moabites to be evaluated? How are the marriages to Moabites to be evaluated? The author doesn't comment. The author doesn't tell us. But several factors can be observed. First, the verb describing the marriage is unusual. First, the verb describing the marriage is unusual. The Hebrew expression that we would see normally in uh, taking a wife is going to be, and I know you all really enjoy this part here, but is uh, lakak. And it's L A Q A. L, uh, H, and it's a hard H, and it's pronounced lachak, and it does mean to take. But this word is nasa, and I think we may have discussed it last time. Nasa. And that is N A S A H. Nasa. And it means to lift. Now, that's the basic meaning, to lift. It can have other meanings. So it's not as if the word is being used improperly, but it's just not the normal word that we would see for uh, in Hebrew to, to marry. It's just not the normal word. So instead of taking a wife, they're lifting a wife, if we want to kind of be rather, or, or carrying. So, if we want to be you know, pretty wooden or, or say it that way. So, the common expression, again, would be to take a woman. Uh, as, and that would be our, our expression to marry. 
The phrase used, the phrase used here, to lift, only appears nine times in the Old Testament. Only appears nine times in the Old Testament. First of all, it's used in Judges 12.23. Judges 12.23. And I would absolutely love to go back and look at that passage. But it's, the, it's, a, it's one of the more unusual passages in the Bible where we see a conflict inside of Israel where we have really infanticide here. Or excuse me, uh, we have uh, fratricide, brother killing brother where uh, the majority of Israel fights against Benjamin. There's a misunderstanding, there's a problem, and there's a war within uh, the, uh, the tribe of Israel. And we wipe out literally the entire tribe of Benjamin with the, the exception of about 600 men who flee to the wilderness. Well, after this is all done, after the emotional uh, anger and hatred of killing is, has passed, Israel says, oh my goodness, what have we done? We've wiped out a tribe. We've almost completely wiped out a tribe. And there are no more uh, women in Benjamin for them to marry. So how are we going to solve this problem? Well, they solve it in two ways. They're going to go out and find wives. And the way that they do it is they literally abduct them. And so our passage in Judges 21... 23, and I'll at least just read this passage for you. Judges 21, 23. Starting in verse 20, they, they need to find wives. So, starting in Judges 21, 20, Therefore they instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, Go lie in wait in the vineyard and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances... Uh, then come out from the vineyards and every man catch a wife for himself. So this you know, sounds like something we might read. Uh, well, I don't know where we'd read it, but you wouldn't think you'd read it in the Bible. Uh, catch her himself from the wives of Shiloh and then, and, uh, then go to the land of Benja- Benjamin. Uh, then it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain that we shall say to them, be kind to them for our sakes because we did not Take a wife for them of them in the war. For, uh, excuse me. Uh, we did not take a wife for any of them in the war. For it is as though you have given the women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of your oath. Well, verse 23. And the, and the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced whom they caught. Well, they didn't take wives. They lifted wives. They you know, abducted them. And so this is one of the unusual uses. We also see it, of course, in Ruth, Ruth 1.4. We'll see it in, and we, we won't have time to go to these other passages, but we'll see it in Second Chronicles 11.21, where Rehoboam takes 78 wives and mistresses. So that's in 2 Chronicles 11.21. And Rehoboam, you may remember, is going to be the son of Solomon. So, you know, like father, like son, he decides to have uh, numerous wives. But the uh, this is also the first generation where uh, Israel will be split into two different 
and two entities. We'll have the northern tribe and the southern tri- uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Rehoboam uh, had been too obstinate to see that there needed to be some changes from his father's administration. He doesn't change it, and another uh, individual rises and and breaks off the ten northern tribes. His name is Jeroboam. But anyhow, the first person we see is Rehoboam, and Second Chronicles eleven twenty one. We also see this in. Second uh, Chronicles thirteen twenty one. When another individual here, Abijah, has fourteen wives, he takes he lists fourteen wives. We're going to see it again in Second Chronicles twenty four three. Second Chronicles twenty four three. The other one was thirteen twenty one. This is twenty four three. And and here we see an individual. Who, is, who takes two wives as well. He lifts two wives, and it's an unusual situation. We'll see this in Ezra 9.2, Ezra 9.2, and in Ezra 9.12. Ezra 9.2, and Ezra 9.12, and also in Ezra 10.44. So the word is used in Ezra 9.2, Ezra 9.12, and Ezra 10.44, and this is when Israel returns to the land, but they take foreign wives. They lift foreign wives, so to speak. And then we see it in Nehemiah 13.25. Nehemiah 13.25, and and we will go to Nehemiah 13.25 because that's going to help us. Uh, And Nehemiah is right in front of Job. So we need to go back. Nehemiah, Esther is in there as well. Nehemiah 13.12 Nehemiah 13.12 What am I saying? Nehemiah 13.25, I'm sorry. And again, this is Nehemiah and he's still dealing with this issue of Marrying the wrong wives, taking marrying the wrong women, and so he's talking to them. Uh, let's start in verse twenty-three. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of or the other people. And we've already seen this in Deuteronomy 7. We're going to go back and see this again. But that's a problem. Verse 25, So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them. So here's a guy that gets violent. Uh, Of course, we don't do that anymore. But So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Well, that's not the word for take, it's the word lift. And so we see that it's used in what we would say in a pejorative way. But let's go on in this verse because it helps us as we're going to see something about Solomon. 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among any other nation, yet among many Many nations there was no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. 
Verse 27. Should we then hear of your doing? Uh, should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? So here we see the use of this word, and we see the context in which we find it. So there we are: Israel taking foreign wives, and in almost every case here, the situation is either abduction, building of, of harems and marriages to non-Israelites. So the phrase used to lift in almost every case is used for abduction, building of of harems, and marrying to non-Israelites. This idiom came to be used mainly of illegitimate marriages or marriages outside the tribes of Israel. So it became used from illegitimate marriages or those outside the tribe of Israel. Now, some of you might say, well, okay, We've heard this, but how about some good examples? All right? Good example. One of the first places we see this is going to be with Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, Isaac, of course, needed a little help finding a wife, but after this beautiful woman was found, he took her as his wife, and that's in Genesis 24, 67. Genesis 24, 67 And we'll go back to Genesis 24. And I like this chapter. It's kind of of a special chapter, uh, I think. Because not only did it take Isaac a long time to take a wife, but it took a long time to tell about him taking a wife. It takes us all the way to verse 67 in this chapter. So, we start in verse 24, and it's a, most of us know this Bible story uh, about the servant who goes back to the land to find a wife for Isaac. And he finds this wife uh, from, his, uh, from, his, uh, from the, the family. As a matter of fact, Laban is mentioned there, and uh, a brother, and Laban's going to play prominently in another story about a wife with Jacob. But we get to verse 66. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into his mother's, uh, his mother's Sarah, his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So here we see an appropriate use of this word. We also see this used in 1 Samuel 25. 39. Now we have a little bit of problem there. We're not, I don't think we really need to go to the passage. But in that passage, it's David marrying Abigail. And this is uh, really the first wife that he marries, Abigail. And he takes her as his wife. So we at least see this. And that's in 1 Samuel 25.39. 1 Samuel 25.39. And then it's used in other places. But let's go to point 8. Point 8. This fact that we see taking these wives, this would be a red flag for a Jewish reader. This would be a red flag for a Jewish reader because Israel was prohibited from marrying non-Israelites or Gentiles. So this passage, verse 5, verses 4 and 5, in Ruth would be a red flag for a Jewish reader because Israel was prohibited from marrying non-Israelites or Gentiles. Now, just being a Gentile is not the problem. In other words, this isn't a racial thing. This isn't a racial problem. But it's the cultural differences that were too great. So the cultural differences are too great. By marrying what we would call a pagan wife, and the word pagan really is not a... uh, 
a word, well, it is a word that's fallen out of use, but it simply means someone who is, the Bible uses it to mean someone who is not of the Christian faith, someone who doesn't have a relationship with God. They're pagan. So, it's not a racial thing, but marrying outside the uh, your religious faith here would bring her into the family with all her Gentile beliefs and religious practices. And that would influence influence Israel into apostasy. So, the woman would bring with her all her Gentile beliefs and religious practices, and that would influence Israel into apostasy. And of course, it doesn't just work with the man marrying the woman, it also works in the other way. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 7. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 7. And we may or we may not have already seen this passage, but again, Deuteronomy 7 is an important passage for us, and we'll start in verse 1. Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 5. There's a reason. God gives Israel, Moses gives Israel, because he's gotten it from God, a reason why this is wrong. And it's applied, can be applied today as well. So Deuteronomy 7, 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, and the word there is, it means to go, but it's causative, and so Israel, uh, God is going to cause them to go, and so we'll often translate that brings. So when the Lord your God brings you into the land, uh, which you go to, to possess, and the word here possess means to take by force, uh, to the land which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them, defeat them, and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Why? Because the uh, the iniquity of the Amorite is full. God had given them 400 years, had worked with them for 400 years, and they rejected God. And now they're like a cancer that needs to be destroyed. Verse 3, Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. So here we see the word again, lakak. You shan't take them. And so the Lord says, you know, works both ways. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their car- uh, carved images with fire. And the word there says, For they will turn your sons away from following me. And the word there is a wonderful Hebrew word called, uh, that is, that's pronounced sur. And we learned in Hebrew that when you approach a sewer, you turn away. You know, the, the, the smell causes you to turn away. So this is very easy to remember this word, sewer. What do you do when you see a sewer? You turn away. So it's the word sewer. Now, let's, just for fun, we're in a section here that's called the blessings, uh, blessings and cursing section. Well, it's actually back in 28, but we can see some of them here. Here it says in verse 4, if you take pagan sons or pagan daughters, they will soar, they will turn your sons away from following me. Well, let's go down to uh, verse 15. Here they're being obedient. They are being obedient, and we'll see in verse 4, let's start in verse 14. 
It says, if you are obedient, you shall be blessed above all people. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. Verse 15, and the Lord will sewer. The Lord will turn away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known. I only go down there because it's a wonderful play on words. And if you, if you, you know, study and translate Hebrew, it just... When you see things like that, you almost jump out of your chair and say, this is remarkable. You can either be caused to turn away from the Lord, or the Lord will cause things to turn away from you. And it's, this is just a remarkable blessing. One of the things we'll pick up as we go by here, you'll notice that if we are being blessed, we're not going to be barren. There's not going to be any barrenness. Well, well I don't, I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to Ruth. Back to Ruth. I think we're going back to Ruth. Uh, we could have gone to Nehemiah 13.1. Well, let's do Nehemiah 13.1. Let's continue to study these passages because Nehemiah is not a, a book that we're in very often. Let's go back to Nehemiah 13.1. I had us there a minute ago. Again, uh, right the, before Job. The easiest way to find it. And Job's in head of Psalms. So, back in Nehemiah 13.1, it says, Nehemiah 13.1, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in hearing the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God. Well, we're going to have to deal with how in the world are we going to get Ruth into the assembly of God here. But anyhow, they're not supposed to do that in the assembly of God because they had not met the ch- because they had not met the children of, of Israel with bread and water but they'd hired Balaam against them to curse them so we'll see that now let's also go to 1 Kings 11:1 1 Kings 11:1 1 Kings 11:1 We'll start, oh boy, 1 Kings 11. Well, let's just go ahead. I've got to read a little ways here. but 1 Kings 11.1 But Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, uh, Ammonites, uh, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. From From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and, and his wives, what? Turned away his heart. Sure, they turned away his heart. Now let's jump down... Uh, uh, verse, let's go down to verse uh, 9. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded him. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and not kept my command, my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. 
And so we'll see that there is a rebellion, Jeroboam's rebellion, and his son, Rehoboam, will only have half the kingdom. So, that's our look at what can happen here. So, taking foreign wives. This again suggests that uh, the family that we see in Ruth is out of fellowship with God. And what we'll learn from our study is that Ruth will eventually become a strong believer. She'll have faith in God. We're going to use the term faith in God in the Old Testament and believer here somewhat interchangeably because it it, it communicates a little easier for us. She'll become a strong believer. However, all indications are that she was a pagan Moabitess. She was a pagan Moabitess before the marriage, and it wasn't until afterwards, and possibly after arriving in Israel, that she became a believer. And we're going to have to study this later in this chapter as to, you know, our speculation as to when she actually has faith in God. But it's possible that she doesn't become a believer until she arrives in Israel. It's also possible that she became a believer before the death of her husband. But let me give you just a little bit of information here as to why I think that's not the case. She will remain with Naomi, return with her to the land, and at that time, I believe, become a practicing Jew. At that time, she will accept the Mosaic Law and the culture of Israel by virtue of, confer- by virtue of conversion. And I may be getting a little ahead of myself, but that's not a problem. The fact that, Na- that Naomi was so insistent for Ruth to go back to her family and stay in Moab suggests that Ruth had not yet converted and that she had not yet converted until after she enters the land of Israel. So, we'll see the use of a certain word, and we'll have to deal with the the word hesed here when uh, Naomi uses it. But had Ruth already converted to, what we'll say, the, the God of Israel, she would have had no place to go. She couldn't have gone home. The only place she could have gone is to Israel. And Naomi is very insistent that the two girls return to their families. So, the fact that Naomi was so insistent for Ruth to go back to her family and stay in Moab suggests that Ruth did not convert until after she had entered the land of Israel. It's doubtful that Naomi would have been so insistent had Ruth been dedicated had been dedicated to God God prior to her husband's death. If she or Orpah had been a believer while living in Moab, had they been believers while living in Moab, they would not have been able to return to their families. And going to Israel would have been appropriate. As a matter of fact, it would have been their only option. Point nine. Point nine. Taking us a little longer to work through some of these points, but hopefully they're as enjoyable for you as they are for me. Point nine. The fact that Ruth became a believer. Point nine, the fact that Ruth became a believer or had faith in God is the grace of God. The fact that she developed faith in God is the grace of God. It's not a principle that we should try to win unbelievers to the Lord by marrying them. So we have to make sure that we understand this principle. It's not a principle that we should win unbelievers to the Lord by marrying them. 
This is sometimes called missionary dating. (laughs) Missionary dating is not a biblical principle. Missionary dating is not a biblical principle. For every marriage that wins a mate to the Lord, for every marriage that wins a mate to the Lord, the bridal path is strewn with countless cases of heartache, suffering, abuse, and eventual divorce. So the bridal path is strewn with countless cases of heartache, suffering, abuse, and eventual divorce. So, you know, and that's... I have a friend who talks about this. He said, uh, it wasn't true in my life. I don't think my mother had this problem. But every time that he would meet a new girl and dating in college, his mother would always say, is she a believer? And he would say, um, well, I, I, I think I, she could be. Oh, you don't, you don't date unbelievers. And he, she made sure that every time he started to date somebody new, maybe it was in high school, that he asked, she asked that question. And he had to come up with the answer. As I said, for some reason my mother didn't have that problem. But anyhow, the, the, the principle comes out of the New Testament as well. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And so we see this in point 9. Point 10. Point 10. It should not go unnoticed that Naomi's sons lived in their married state for 10 years without fathering children. So point 10 says it should not go unnoticed that Naomi's sons lived in their unmarried state for 10 years. They're living for 10 years in this unmarried state. Excuse me, married state. It should not go unnoticed that Naomi's sons lived in their married state. Thank you. Inquisitive looks. Helped me. Lived in their married state for 10 years without fathering children. And these families are not like modern families. Modern families that will go for 10, 15 years without children. So these families are not like modern ones waiting to have children later in life because the wives have careers or because of Planned Parenthood. You know, we're just planning it out and we're waiting. The norm in the ancient world was for families to have children while both parents were young, especially the wife. So the norm then was children, early, soon. Often marriages were seen almost exclusively for the purpose of having children. I mean, that was the purpose, married and have children. As a matter of fact, very early in the history of mankind, that was one of the things that God said. Uh, that was a, that was important. It was a requirement for them to marry and to multiply. That both sons did not have children is an indication of the barrenness of these marriages. That both sons did not have children is an indication of the barrenness of these marriages. This can be interpreted as evidence. This can be interpreted as evidence of the punitive, though hidden hand of God. It can be interpreted as evidence of the punitive, though hidden, hand of God. I mean, you know, again, we read this and they don't have children. We read right along and say, well, you know, 10 years, that's no big deal. You know, people are married. They don't have children for 10 years, maybe 15, 20, whatever it is. But that's not the norm here. And so we see that there is barrenness here. And we've read the chapter in in Deuteronomy 7, and we've seen that... Uh, I don't know that I got all the way down to Deuteronomy 7.14, but Deuteronomy 7.14 was the critical part there. 
Deuteronomy 7.14, well, yes, it was. We did that. We said that you shall be blessed above all people. There shall not be a maid or female barren. There not should be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. So it's not going to be, you know, someone's barren. Uh, there's a problem. So that we, that's what we see in Deuteronomy 7.14. It's also restated in 28.14. Deuteronomy 28.14. Later, it would take an act of God to enable Ruth who had been barren. Later it would take an act of God to enable Ruth, who had been barren, to conceive and bear a son from Boaz. So later it would take an act of God to enable Ruth, who had been barren, to conceive and bear a son from Boaz. The Lord gave her conception, is what it says in 4.13. The Lord gave her conception. Point 11. Point 11. So we see Elimelech was trying to solve their problems in his own way. Verse uh, point 11, principle 11. We see that Elimelech was trying to solve their problem in his own way. Most of us confront our problems the same way. You know, most of us will confront our problems the same way. We think that we have the solution. We think we have the solution, and then, you know, here we have, we're in the midst of problems, adversity, and we think we've got the solution. And again, for a while, it appears that our solutions work. You know, our technique can work. We encounter the problem, and we immediately make our own plans for how we can continue to function and survive. So we encounter the problem, and we immediately make our own plans for how we can continue to function and survive. Surviving, living day to day. But what we have to understand is that God's plan is not simply about survival. Because that's generally what we're trying to do. We have a problem, and what we want to do is we want to make the hurt go away. We want to see if we can't stop this problem. We want to see if we can survive. But God's plan is not simply about survival. God wants us to be able to face our problems and adversity with joy. God wants us to be able to face our problems and adversity with joy and to live a life that is full. God wants us to be able to face our problems and adversity with joy and to live a life that's full. Full and with a joy that pervades our soul. And see, that's what we're told in James 1 2. You know, count it all joy when you face these problems and adversities. Why? Because it's going to lead you to maturity. It leads us to maturity. We also see this in John 10.10, 10, where, where God says, I came to bring you life, and I came to bring you a more abundant life. John 10.10. 10, that you can live life and lend it more abundantly. So it's not just getting by. We're not just surviving. We're to live an abundant life. However, maturing is what testing is all about. Maturing is what testing is all about. The issue is testing. The issue in testing is not to figure out how we can avoid it or get out from under it. Maturing is what testing is all about, and that brings you know that's kind of what we see in James in James one two there. Maturing is what testing is all about. The issue in testing is not to figure out how we can avoid it and get out from under it. Not to avoid it and get out from under it, but in First Corinthians ten. 13, we're told that God provides a solution. 
And this will be the last, the last uh, verse we can look up. But, but let's go back to 1 Corinthians 10.13. 1 Corinthians 10.13. 1 Corinthians 10.13 explains my statement here. That the issue is not to figure out how we can avoid it or get out from under it. But in 1 Corinthians 10.13, we're told that God provides a solution and the way to handle the testing so that we can endure it. And it says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No tempting has overtaken you except such as is common to man. In other words, God's not going to send you something that has either not been experienced by other people or that is uh, beyond your capability as a human to encounter it. I mean, when we encounter adversity or suffering, it's horrible. It's devastating. And all we can think of is, it's got to stop. But it says that no tempting or testing has ever overtaken you, such as common demand. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. And the idea here is that we're not trying to avoid it we're going to bear it. We're going to endure it. And we're going to remain steadfast in it and depend upon the Lord's resources. So we stay under the pressure in the situation. We stay under the pressure in the situation. Where? In the land. We stay in the land. We stay in the land where there's a famine. Trusting God, and then God provides the resources, the solution, and blessing in order to survive. So we stay in the land, trusting God, and then God provides the resources, the solution, and the blessing in order to survive. All of this occurs on God's strength, not our strength. God's strength, not our strength. God's agenda, not our agenda. When we finally understand this principle, we can truly begin to grow spiritually. We can truly begin to grow in our spiritual maturity. So that was point 11. We've got uh, a couple more to go, and I see that we have uh, come to the end of our class. Um, again, we didn't get back to our text, which I really want to get back to, because when we get back to Naomi and Ruth and, uh, how, uh, and how Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, uh, or, uh, Orpah, Orpah deal with this, it's really a wonderful situation. But we'll come back next time. And we'll move on in our text. Finish up a few more things. Next time what we're going to do is uh, just take another quick look at what the sojourn idea was here. Then we're going to look at the Moabites and uh, the relationship that Israel had with uh, Moab. And then we'll get on in our text. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for those who are here to study the Word of God. We're thankful that there is... Uh, an interest and desire, and truly, hopefully, Father, a passion to learn Your Word because it's Your Word that makes a difference in our life. It's the Word of God that's alive and powerful. Thank You for the text of Scripture, uh, the texts, actually, that we have studied this morning as we reviewed many Old Testament passages and even got into the New Testament, Father. Help us to understand the uh, principles that are taught here Help us to, to see them not just as a story and not just as something that was given to Israel, but how they relate in our lives. And so we're thankful for the, the principles. We're thankful for the analogies that we can make to our lives and help us to make good, direct application. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.